0: WellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives pull up a rock by the campfire it's time for that paleo show with your host sarah stewart steve hayter and the man with no shoes brett hill
1: That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Sarah Stewart.
2: I'm Steve Hayter. And I'm Brett Hill.
1: I'm beside myself in anticipation for today's conversation. Being someone that likes to keep their finger on the pulse of trending health topics, I've been somewhat frustrated with what can at times feel like a one-size-fits-all mentality to paleo. While paleo continues to rapidly increase in popularity, which is fantastic, it would also appear that the paleo police are out in force and willingly ready to tell you everything you're doing wrong. So, when it comes to considering an individual approach, a supportive environment to talk through some options can be hard to find up until now that is paleo police you're on notice this is no longer going to be the way so uh, today's guest has an innate natural intelligence for health he is a licensed acupuncturist and practitioner of integrative medicine and runs his own private practice in california Pursuing optimum wellness from an early age, he is well-versed in a wide range of alternative health practices and Eastern spirituality. Anyone in the know would support me when I say he's kind of a big deal. So after setting out to see the world and experiencing his own chronic illness, he was catapulted into a personal journey of wellness and is now using his knowledge, experience and hard work to inspire others and literally change the way we view health. After becoming dissatisfied with the lack of results he was getting from conventional medicine, Chris delved into his own research and concluded that many of the ideas and beliefs we hold about health in this society are myths. Not one to back away from controversy, Chris through exhaustive research has exposed massive conflicts of interest between drug companies, doctors, and researchers. With this in mind, it is easy to see why he looked for an alternative uh, answers. So, in his very first book, Your Personal Paleo Code, Chris blows us out of the water once again by boldly advocating don't follow the paleo diet, follow your paleo diet. Chris captures in written word his approach to optimising nutrition and lifestyle to burn fat, boost energy and prevent and reverse disease naturally. I cannot wait to get into the nitty gritty of this topic. Without doubt, this book is a total game changer. So it's my absolute pleasure and privilege to introduce today's guest, Chris Kresser. Welcome to That Paleo Show.
0: Wow, it's a pleasure to be here, and I think uh, if you're looking for a position as a publicist, I'd be happy to bring you onto my team. That was the best intro I think I've ever received.
1: Oh, fantastic, Chris. Well, it's easy to write. you're right. you pretty awesome. So, no, it just flowed. Well, um, Chris, when people like Rob Wolf refer to you as the most knowledgeable clinician in the paleo world, you know you're doing it right. And uh, something that I really love about your work is that you promote health and longevity in addition to treating disease. You advocate a personalised approach to healthcare that recognises the biological uniqueness in all of us and you strive to empower, educate and encourage people to play an active role in their own healing process. Um, So you allow people to be accountable for their own health in a supportive structure that fosters success. Can you start by telling us a bit about your background and how you arrived at where you are today?
0: mm-hmm sure yeah I was um in my early twenties travelling over in your neck of the woods uh in Indonesia, so not too far away and i I got uh the classic tropical illness uh, I was you know vomiting delirium fever diarrhea um intense malaise. I don't really even remember what was happening for three days. I was surfing on Sumbawa, an island there, and uh, a couple of Australians, actually, that I was staying with in the village had some antibiotics that they administered to me that kind of brought me back from the edge. But um, as I continued to travel, it became clear that although the acute episode passed quickly, it was evolving into a complex chronic and very debilitating illness that ended up taking me about a decade to fully recover from. So during that process, I learned more than I ever imagined I would learn or intended to learn about uh, health and wellness, what works, what doesn't work, the importance of Personalization and customizing an approach based on my own unique needs at that time, and also the importance of questioning everything that I was told about health and wellness on both ends of the spectrum, not just the mainstream end of the spectrum, but also the alternative end of the spectrum. Uh, I, I learned to. Um, for better or for worse, not trust what I was told, <laughs> and to investigate everything that that I uh, learned about on my own to see what the research actually said, and then also what my own experience revealed. So I've, th- I've really, you know, the way that I approach things in my professional life is a direct reflection of what I learned in my own personal experience recovering from that decade-long chronic illness. Wow. So, um,
2: Chris, you mentioned there sort of, I guess, uh, you know, you like to challenge things. And certainly, it Mm -hmm. seems like in the paleo world, you are someone who likes to challenge the kind of the accepted norms and say, well, you know, let's not just accept it. Let's, you know, make sure of everything, which I think is great. Mm -hmm. Um, Have have you had much sort of feedback and flack from the paleo community when you start (laughs) to challenge things that are, you know, sacred cows in paleo?
0: Yeah, I have a little bit. um, But I would say overall, the response has been really positive, actually, and I've... I've seen a change in the last year or two in the paleo world, and I'm, I'm certainly not taking credit for that change. Um, but myself, I, I may have had some influence, uh, perhaps, in the way things are going. But other uh, paleo or primal advocates, like Mark Sisson, have for for quite a while um, advocated, or at least uh, said that you know things like full fat dairy or fermented dairy m- may be fine for people who tolerate it, and. Um, Mark has a has a really balanced approach that I appreciate, and and Rob, although when he originally wrote his book, he was you know a pretty strict paleo advocate. These days, he's really uh, expanded from that uh, original position, and and uh, I think his what he would say is very similar to what I wrote in my book, which is that everyone would probably benefit from trying a strict paleo approach. For thirty or sixty days, at least once in their life, to see how they feel, and you know, kind of get to a baseline place because those are the foods that are least likely to cause reactions. They're all. It's also the approach that's most likely to lead to rapid weight loss and and um, starting to reverse some chronic disease symptoms if that's what you're dealing with. But. I know he would also agree with me that if you reintroduce some of those gray area foods that I talk about in the book, like nightshade plants, uh, dark chocolate, moderate alcohol consumption, full fat dairy, fermented dairy, and even uh, possibly some properly prepared grains and legumes, and you d- and and you do well and you don't experience a decline in health, and those foods don't replace more nutrient dense foods like organ meats and meats, fish. Fruits and vegetables, nuts and seeds, etc. Then I don't think he would have a problem with that either. So, certainly there have been some hardcore paleo purists that have whose uh, whose who's, uh, feathers I may have ruffled a little bit, but I think in general the the whole community is moving toward more flexibility and a little bit less rigid dogma, which is a great trend. It's a great trend because it's going to make this whole movement more palatable, uh, if you will, to the, the mainstream and, and uh, give it a, a better chance of, of penetrating um, more than it has so far. Absolutely.
3: And uh, my question, Chris, relates to uh, people who are fairly new to paleo. So maybe three to six months in, you know, when you're 12, 18 months down the track, you start really noticing that you want to tweak things that you perhaps didn't feel as good as you did in the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. what, what is some advice that you can give to people who have just started on their paleo journey who are perhaps feeling pretty fantastic right now? Um, what, what could they know? I mean, other than getting a copy of your book in their hands to, to help them to know <laughs> what to expect, but what, what, yeah. what could they benefit from knowing where they are sort of now, you know, that three to six months
0: in?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh. Yeah, it's, it's a little difficult to answer that, only because everyone is so different, and that's, of course, the point of my book, but not just my book, my podcast, website, etc. Um, I think some of the... But I can give you kind of a few general trends that seem to be common at that phase in the journey. Yeah. I would say one would be uh, at that point, a lot of people start to be, find that even though they initially felt well on a low-carb version of paleo and may have started that way and may have lost significant weight that way, around the three- or six-month mark is when you might start to see some symptoms develop from that low-carb approach. Not in everybody, but in people who aren't feeling quite as well as, as they were before, you might start to see some cold hands and feet, some hair loss perhaps in, in, in women, um, some fatigue, some digestive issues, all, all of which can be a sign of, of suboptimal thyroid function, which is one possible effect of a lower, longer term, low carb, very low carb diet. You might start to see energy flag that can also be related to hypothyroidism, but it can be related uh, as well to, uh, you know, like a, an activated stress response or a subop in, in, I hesitate to use the word adrenal fatigue syndrome or the phrase because that's such a loaded term. And there's, uh, I mean, we could do a whole nother show about that, but it's a recognizable term. And most, many people know what I mean when I say that. So I'll just, yeah. I'll use it. Um, so that's also one situation where a very low carb diet is not Always the best choice, and in, in many cases, a more moderate carb approach is better for people with adrenal fatigue syndrome. Um, I think at that stage, uh, another thing to be cognizant of would be if you haven't by then been introducing things like organ meats and bone broth and sea vegetables, which are rich in iodine and selenium and other trace minerals, uh, fermented foods, fermentable fibers, etc. You may not be getting as much out of this approach to nutrition as you could because those are all those all contain really important nutrients that complement the nutrients that are found in muscle meats and Fruits and vegetables and, and, you know, eggs and things that, you, that people are pro- typically eating a lot of on a, on a standard paleo diet. So um, that's another thing to be aware of. And then I would say um, consider, you know, possibly uh, for some people adding some full-fat dairy and particularly fermented dairy might be a really good move at that point. If They haven't tried doing that already because the full-fat dairy has some compounds that have been shown to be really beneficial for health uh, Like butyrate and trans palmitoleic acid and conjugated linoleic acid. They're rich in fat-soluble Vitamins like vitamin a and k2 with fermented dairy that are difficult to obtain You know elsewhere certainly possible, but but more difficult so Those are just a few general things, but then another thing that's important is to start thinking about how you can tweak your approach for a particular health condition if you suffer from one. So if you're dealing with digestive issues, or you have have autoimmune disease, or you have skin problems, or you have diabetes or a blood sugar disorder, there are a lot of additional steps you can take to, to make paleo work for those particular health conditions.
3: Oh, that is! Uh, I'm so glad that you took it where you took it, Chris. Sarah and I are looking at each other with wide-eyed smiles at the moment. Our <laughs> inner health nerds are just are going, <laughs> going nuts. So that was fantastic, mate. W- what a what a gold uh, bit of advice.
1: I reckon our uh, next job is going to have to be uh, getting someone to make organ meat cool. Yeah, yeah. make, <laughs> yeah, exactly. make palate I'm across the first yeah. step and how uh, important well, it is. For... I
0: mean, the good news is there are a lot of there's a pretty big movement. I'm not sure if it's happening in Australia uh, as much, but here, at least in certain in, in cities within the U.S., there's a big nose-to-tail movement happening where you're actually starting to see nose-to-tail restaurants where they're serving things like bone marrow yeah. uh, and oh. organ meats. And I uh, I had, in New York, I'm on my book tour right now, and, and New York was the second or third stop, and we had a a party at a restaurant called Cannibal in New York City, <laughs> and um, which is a cool name for a restaurant, for a paleo restaurant, and we had, um, they had a charcuterie, you know, so some prepared meats, salamis, salamis, things like that, but they, we also had a, a, a whole suckling pig, so they roasted the pig, and they brought the whole suckling pig out on a platter and, and cut cut it up, you know, all the different parts of the animal. And so uh, we we had the nose-to-tail dining experience, which is really cool. And with organ meats, there are a lot of ways you can prepare them to make them more palatable. I mean, uh, for example, pâtés, liver pâté, a lot of people like and can tolerate, even if they don't like eating liver straight up, Um taking a small piece of liver and like about an ounce and mix, chopping that small, mixing it together with ground beef and then seasoning it with some paprika and cumin, coriander, maybe a little bit of cayenne, some salt and pepper. Um, you generally, and then if you cook that in a little bit of bone broth with some a little bit of tom, like uh, canned tomatoes, uh, you'll have a really nutritious... Um, ground beef dish that has some liver in it that you won't even taste because of the seasonings and if you do that three times a week you'll be getting all the liver that you need because it's so nutrient dense you only really need about three ounces a week to get the recommended amount of vitamin a so um that's that's one way that works for just about all of my patients if you don't like The texture or taste of liver. There's your prescription from the doctor. You heard it first.
1: (laughs) You might might detect that Steve's a little bit more excited about organ meat than I am. I'm ready to go, Chris. I'm I'm all (laughs) all about the can-do, and I reckon (laughs) they are definitely some can-do, so I'm going to give it a crack. Yeah. Absolutely. Give that a
0: shot, and Steve, you can just slip it in there and don't tell her and nice. see if she notices. <laughs> yeah, I like it.
1: <laughs> I'll just assume now. <laughs> uh, Chris, what I love about your approach to many, many things is the simplicity. Um, your depth of knowledge and your research is extensive, but um, in your book, um, it's basically a three-step approach. And, um is just broken down really s- simply. Can you tell us a little bit about um, the way you've gone about laying it out for people?
0: Sure, yeah, uh, and I'm glad uh, that you feel that way because it's that's probably the hardest part of my job is translating the, the scientific research, which as you know is not user-friendly, <laughs> into um, something that's useful and practical for people. And... Uh, mm addressing an audience that includes scientists and physicians and you know there are a lot of people in that group that read my blog and, and my book but also you know right down to the, the layperson with no scientific training at all and I think it's important to be able to speak to all of those people um in a way that resonates with them and and so that's I would say that's the biggest challenge in my work and it's the most one of the more more gratifying parts of it So the book, in the book, that was sort of, that was the thing that took me the longest to figure out was how to structure the book, how to make it uh, accessible for people who don't care about, you know, having scientific references in there. But also how to have, you know, there's over 800 references in the the book that are included that we we decided to put on the website um, so that people who did want to access that could. And the three steps... It ended up, as you pointed out, being structured into three steps, and this is actually the process that I use when I work with patients in my clinic. And you know, it's not something I just came up with for the book. It's it's early on when I started working with patients, I developed this process as a means of helping people to figure out how to customize their diet for their own particular needs and step one is the 30 the typical what we you've probably heard of is the 30-day challenge or i call it the 30-day reset that's a strict you know a strict 30-day paleo elimination diet and i i that's pretty much how i think of strict paleo now is as an elimination diet mm. not something that you would continue forever like you rarely do with you know some people might but for most people it's it's a starting place it's a way of hitting that reset button and getting back to kind of a baseline of health and then from there you can start to build your own ideal program but if you can't you have to start from there because if you don't get to that baseline then you'll n- you never know how all those gray area foods are are affecting you so step 2 once you finish up with that step one reset is where you start to reintroduce things like full-fat dairy and uh, white potatoes, for example, and dark chocolate and moderate alcohol if you want to do that, and uh, possibly even some grains like white rice or some um, fermented or sprouted soaked grains and legumes. But then we also discuss the importance of lifestyle factors like getting enough sleep, um Integrating physical activity throughout your day managing your stress cultivating more pleasure and connection bringing more play into your life and optimizing sun exposure because those Factors are really crucial for health and in some cases even more important than diet believe it or not Not and then and then the third step is when the rubber hits the road, so to speak, in terms of customization. That's where you do the real fine-tuning. So how much protein, fat, and carbohydrate should you eat based on your particular needs? Uh, how, what, what meal frequency and timing works best for you? So should you uh, eat you know, several small meals throughout the day, or do you do better compressing all of your food intake into an eight-hour window, which is a strategy known as intermittent fasting? Um you know, do you? What about things like carbohydrate backloading, where you eat more, more a higher percentage of your carbohydrates later in the day than earlier in the day? Uh, we talk about paleo superfoods, which I alluded to earlier, um, and then I mentioned how to tweak paleo for ten of the most common health conditions that we're facing today. So that's the basic structure of the book. Awesome! Yeah, I
2: love it, Chris. It, it's so cool, and it's such an awesome book. So, yeah, congratulations and well done. Um, Thank you. The uh, you know, there's a lot of diets out there, Chris, where people talk about you know uh, figuring out what you should eat based on your blood type or your lineage or like you said, what chronic diseases you've got. And obviously, you're suggesting more of a um, you know, I guess, an elimination approach to figure out what's personally right for you. You know, what do you think about those sort of diets? Like, do you think that there is something in that that different blood types might be more suited to going a particular way, or do you think just flat out just doing the elimination and figuring out what works for you is best? <laughs>
0: Yeah. The blood type diet was certainly an intriguing concept, and, and there's a way in which it, it, it sort of seemed to make sense, you know, just on the surface level. Unfortunately, there's absolutely no research supporting it. So, and in fact, even the, the description that he presented of how blood types evolved over time was completely inaccurate. And yeah. so that kind of throws the entire basis of the blood type diet into question, at least how he explained it, because um, the order in which the blood types evolve was not consistent with his description, and therefore the the diet that would be suitable for each wouldn't match up either. I think the main reason a lot of people feel better when they do a blood type diet, at least in the Western world, is um, in the U.S., the majority of people are type O, and guess what diet he recommends for type O? A paleo diet, <laughs> so, you know, so um, that, you know, people who are type O lucked out because they got a diet that actually turns out to be the one that humans evolved on and, and tend to feel best on, but people who were A, B or, you know, the other blood types that ended up with a vegetarian prescription may not have been so lucky, so I think it's certainly true that our genes affect what is optimal for us, and I, and I talk about that in the book. And not only our genes, but how our genes express themselves during our lifetime, and that gene expression is is a field known as epigenetics, which is really exciting and lots of new discoveries being made there now. So I'm I'm not saying that genes don't have an influence, but I am saying that the influence they have is um, relatively minor. It doesn't. It may sort. For example mean that one person can tolerate starch a little bit better than another person. It's not so significant that it would mean that one person should be a vegetarian, whereas another person should be you know, eat, eating only meat. Um, so I, I do think that when it comes down to it, elimination and provocation is still the gold standard for determining what's optimal for you, because... There are no genetic tests that, we can, that are readily available that can tell you that information. And there are not even any food allergy tests that are scientifically validated that can tell you that information. There are a lot of food allergy tests, but unfortunately, very few, none of them that I'm aware of, are actually backed by peer-reviewed uh, scientific research.
2: Yeah. yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. I think we, we, sort of, we know a little bit about it. In terms of the genes mm-hmm. and how they affect them, we, sort of, we seem to be extrapolating that to, to a lot.
3: Yeah, exactly. Chris, you touched before on um, ensuring that we get adequate sun. And, and this is something that's um, a, an interesting point for, for us here in Australia because we have sure. um, some of the highest skin cancer rates in the world. Um, we have really strong campaigns regarding slip, you know, slip, slop, slap it is over here, which is to ensure you're appropriately covered with clothing and, and that you've got mm-hmm. your sunscreen on and things like that. Um, we had a question from one of our followers that pertained to the, uh, role that a low, that low vitamin D plays in the variety of, of, uh, well, a variety of, of, um, Health conditions and uh, and disease and so forth that's being linked together. So, where um, with regards to vitamin d supplementation i'm not sure how to tie this question down into one but um where where does it uh, tie into with regards to supplement supplementing your vitamin d if you're uh, not getting enough sun exposure and also the second part being the effectiveness of that supplementation if things like your gut health and your fat consumption are not not complementing it
0: yeah so um As far as skin cancer and sun exposure, that's that's a very interesting subject, which, of course, we could spend a lot of time talking about. But um, excess sun exposure does certainly increase the risk of certain types of skin cancer. But not enough sun exposure can actually increase the risk of melanoma, which is the most aggressive and potentially fatal form of skin cancer. So that's something that not a lot of people are aware of. And um, I do think it's important to protect from sunburn. Frequent sunburn, especially, can be problematic and increase the risk of the uh, types of skin cancer that are that are more benign in general and, and can generally be and, and are generally treatable. But they're still, you know, a, a pain and something that you want you probably want to avoid if you can. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that you should never get any exposure to the sun without sunblock you know uh, i think down in your part of the world depending on your skin tone i mean the amount of the the amount of sun that you're exposed to uh that's required to produce a sufficient amount of vitamin D depends on several factors. It depends on the solar angle. So, um, you know, where the the angle of the sun in the sky, it depends on skin tone. So someone who's fair-skinned, of course, will produce more vitamin D in a shorter period of time than someone that's Uh, darker-skinned. It depends on latitude, which affects solar angle, and season, which also affects solar angle. But it also affects on certain markers of health status. So, for example, people that are obese do not convert as much sunlight into vitamin D as people who are lean, which is something that not many people are aware of. Mm. And inflammation also suppresses the conversion of sunlight to vitamin D. So if someone is obese and inflamed, which tends to go together, um they will convert less sunlight into vitamin D with a given amount of sun exposure than someone that doesn't have those conditions so that's something else to be aware of in terms of vitamin D and the and the connection with disease that subject is also m- much more complex than most people make it out to be i think the the pendulum has swung from one extreme to the other now where earlier on you know we didn't know that much about vitamin D and um everyone you know that there just wasn't enough discussion about its importance and its role, and now it's it's swung to the other end of the spectrum, where some uh, organizations like the Vitamin D Council in the U.S. are recommending that people drive their levels up to 80 nanograms per per deciliter. Um, and I'm sorry, I don't know what to convert. We use different units here in uh, the U.S. One hundred mils is one deciliter. Yeah. So, uh, and there's there's online calculators if someone wants to go type that in, but, um, yeah, so, you know, there are some organizations recommending extremely high levels of vitamin D when there's really no research to support that, and there's actually some research that suggests that, um, I mean, it's known that vitamin D can be toxic at high levels, and there's Mm. some research suggesting that even excess exposure to sunlight, vitamin D, high levels of vitamin D from excess sun exposure can cause... Can dramatically increase the risk of kidney stones and and possibly the risk of calcification of the arteries, which in turn would would increase the risk of heart disease. So, I reviewed something, some ungodly number of studies on vitamin D when I wrote that section of my book. And the Institute of Medicine actually published a big report after reviewing over a thousand peer-reviewed studies over a long period of time. And their recommend we came out pretty similar. My recommendation was. 25 to 50 nanograms per milliliter, uh, and and there, um, and I think I said deciliter before. I should have said milliliter. Oh, and okay. and the, the Institute of Medicine is uh, 20 to 50, and that's much lower than most other organizations. It's even lower than the lab range in, in the U.S. The lab range goes down to 32, so they would say anything below 32 is is uh, deficient. But I think the evidence supports that range of 20 to 50 or 25 to 50. And the question about whether to supplement is should be answered by a blood test. So you, you test your levels, you see where they are. If they're lower than that range, then you try a period of supplementation and then you retest and you see, you know, if, it, if they go back into the range, then you're in good shape. Uh, if you're above that range then, and you are supplementing, then I would suggest not supplementing mm. um, until you get back into that range. Nice. Nice.
1: Yeah. Well, what an interview. Chris, you've um, laid so many amazing um, bombs on us, um, which I'm sure many of us will be talking about for some time. So hopefully um, we've planted the seed and I strongly encourage people to um, have a look at your book. Get your very own copy of your personal Paleo Code. I'm sure it will be flying off the shelves. Um, and I'm so excited to add that Paleo Perla to our bookshelf at home as well. So, head over to Chris Cross, Chris, Oh, I can't speak today com to place your order I'm so excited that's why <laughs> so while you're there as well we always talk about the importance of tribe and community check out the online forum because you can join others just like you who are personalizing their diet and pursuing their best health um, it's also an amazing compliment to the book as well because the site gives you access to the best proven natural strategies for personalizing your diet addressing chronic conditions and optimizing your overall all wellness and for free as well so you'll find ebooks paleo meal plans and members only seminars um, as well as evidence-based health facts so you can keep up to speed with all things chris Cresser by follow, following him on facebook twitter pinterest and youtube he has his own podcast and we'll also put up all of the links on our facebook page so it's nice and easy for you no excuses there So um, that's it for this week. What a privilege to be able to talk to Chris. We hope you've enjoyed the show as much as we did. Make sure you head over to our website, thatpaleoshow.com, to tell us what you think. Until next week, check us out on Facebook and Instagram, share your story, and help to grow the Paleo Tribe worldwide. Just
0: one more thing before we sign off, I wanted to, because we have received a lot of questions about this from international readers, the name of my book outside of the U.S. is Your Personal Paleo Diet,
1: and uh, it has a different oh cover,
0: it's not um, the orange and yellow color that you see on my website, it's a green and white cover with a picture of a lot of different paleo foods, and I won't go into the details of why that is. It's just one of the uh, you know things about the publish how the publishing industry works. So uh, it's the same book. The only difference is it's got metric measurements and you know color is spelled with a U and things like that. But <laughs> no, otherwise, just, it's the same no. same book.
1: We'll see if we can hunt uh, awesome. down a picture and put it on our slide as well. Yeah, so. it, it,
0: it, you know there's lots of uh, mate pup. Peppered in there too. Oh. And, and, and <laughs> to throw, yes. so. Is there a good day
2: Is there at least one? <laughs> no. Yeah. Thanks there's no gaiday in there. Yeah. Unfortunately,
0: that that didn't make the final cut. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Chris. All right, guys. Thanks a lot. a pleasure. So Cheers. Good luck. Bye. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye.